0: Hi folks, my name is Drew Ray and you're listening to episode 16 of Disastercast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. More precisely, we're here to talk about safety engineering. Safety engineering is about managing risk, which in turn means it's about managing uncertainty. Identifying uncertainty, measuring uncertainty, reducing uncertainty, communicating uncertainty, forcing others to confront uncertainty, and lying awake at night because you can never completely get rid of uncertainty. When we assess the safety of a system, we're never certain the system will be used as intended, maintained as intended, or even that the system will be what we intended when we first wrote the requirements. We have uncertainty about where our data comes from, from uncertainty in methods we use to process it, uncertainty about whether we've used those methods correctly, uncertainty about whether the answer means what we think it means. When you ask any engineer any question about the safety of any system, an honest answer always comes with the caveat, I'm not certain. So why, when I mention the phrase dogmatic safety zealot, can you picture exactly the type of person I'm talking about? The sort of person who thinks that a written policy is an answer to an empirical question about reality, that the ability to quote chapter and verse from legislation is a substitute for actual problem-solving, that risk emerges from regulatory-approved formulas instead of real people and real systems, and that the big open questions in system safety all involve determining which of several committee-produced standards represents divine truth. In short, the sort of person in dire need of a close encounter with a weaponized cure for obstinate stupidity. Partly, I think it's because humans conflate confidence with competence. We instinctively believe people who give us quick and clear answers, and think that if people doubt themselves then we should doubt them too. This causes us to ignore people who don't give us straight answers about whether something is safe or not safe, and thus gives free reign to graduates of the Dunning-Kruger School of Safety Engineering to strut around, too ignorant of their own ignorance to be humble about what they don't know. The fact is, in system safety there's a heck of a lot that we don't know. What little evidence we have about what works or doesn't work is wrapped in confidentiality and confirmation bias. We don't have the resources to conduct grand experiments to test our theories and we're limited in what we could ethically test even if we had the time and money. Any volunteers, by the way, to be in the control group when we try to prove that safety analysis makes aircraft safer? Our guest this week, Michael Holloway, is exactly the opposite of a zealot and would be horrified if I said you should listen to him because he's right. Let's just say instead that every time I've heard him speak, I've gone away with something new to think about. Before we get to that interview, though, we'll discuss this episode's disaster. Iraq, 1971 During the past decade there had been a number of droughts and failed harvests. 1969 and 1970 had been particularly bad years, so much so that most of the seed grain had been eaten and there was hardly anything left to plant. South America, on the other hand, was experiencing bumper crops as part of a new green revolution. So the Iraqi vice president, a young man called Saddam Hussein, decided to import a large quantity of Mexican Wonder Wheat and a smaller quantity of barley, this grain was intended for planting, not for eating, so it was considered important to treat it with fungicide, but not important that the fungicide be safe to eat. Now, if you were looking for a very cheap fungicide in 1970, you couldn't go past methylmercury. After a number of serious mercury poisoning incidents, several of them actually in Iraq, ethyl mercury and methylmercury had been banned in Scandinavia and the USA. This pretty much killed the global market for the chemicals. Still, the methylmercury didn't actually get absorbed by the seeds, the resulting crops would be perfectly safe. The important thing was not to turn this very cheap seed stock into human food products, such as bread. To make sure this didn't happen, the grain was coloured with red dye and placed in sacks with warning labels, the traditional skull and crossbones. Farmers who were given the grain were supposed to be given strict instructions about its use. If you haven't heard this story before, just take a moment to predict what you think is going to happen next. It's always easier to criticise in hindsight. So I'd like you to have the small satisfaction of being able to genuinely say that you could foresee what's coming next. The grain arrived late. Because the grain was late, the trucks that were supposed to deliver the grain had gone off to do other things. So the grain became really late. Not only had the crops already been planted, but anyone who had grain to spare had already sold it, in the sure knowledge that the big shipment was going to lower grain prices. Starving farmers with no grain left of their own, received big bags of grain marked with international warning symbols that meant nothing to Iraqis, and often they didn't get any proper instructions about the danger. Some of them understood a little bit about the poison, so they tested it on animals and elderly relatives. When there were no immediate symptoms, mercury poisoning taking a few weeks to develop, they baked pink bread and fed it to their children. Other farmers washed off the pink dye, thinking that the dye was the poison, probably There were even a number of opportunists who washed off the dye, then resold the product as if it were normal, safe grain. Within a few months, it was clear that there was a crisis. Symptoms included paresthesia, loss of balance, blindness, and death. Doctors who had experience from the previous mercury poisonings recognized these symptoms and alerted the government. The government then tried to simultaneously warn people about the grain and cover up news about the disaster. This didn't work. Cases of poisoning continued to increase, and eventually the death penalty was ordered for anyone selling the poisoned wheat. Let's have another pause for a prediction. We have a large number of starving farmers, a threat to kill anyone who sells the grain, and a blackout making it hard to get reliable information about what's happening. Warnings of the death penalty didn't spread fast enough because there was a news blackout, and so the army started actually carrying out executions. Once their neighbours started being shot... Farmers panicked and dumped their remaining stocks of grain into streams and ditches where it was eaten by the local wildlife. Fish and birds suffering from mercury poisoning become much easier to catch, and so even more people were poisoned by eating poisoned animals. Officially, there were 6,500 cases of poisoning and 460 deaths. These are hospital-recorded figures, though amongst a rural population with no reason to trust governments and hospitals. Unofficial estimates range up to 10,000 deaths and 100,000 cases of severe poisoning. This is a story of unintended consequences that should have been foreseen. Here's one that you might not have recognised. The World Health Organisation, in making recommendations to prevent future similar tragedies, suggested that prompt publicity about the size and nature of the problem is important. For this to happen, the country involved must believe that they will receive help, not condemnation, in return for their honesty. Iraq had learned from the earlier mercury poisoning outbreaks. They'd just learned the wrong lesson. An international blame culture contributed directly to the media blackout, the cover-up, and ultimately to many of the casualties. I'm speaking to Michael Holloway. Could you start by introducing yourself, Michael?
1: So my name is Michael Holloway. I'm a senior research engineer at NASA's Langley Research Center in Hampton, Virginia, which is in the U.S. I've been a Langley employee for slightly over 30 years. I started in 1983, just a couple of weeks after I got my bachelor's of science in computer science from the University of Virginia. And except for a couple of years on graduate study leave, I've worked at Langley and lived in York County, uh, which is named after the UK city of York uh, ever since. My primary professional interests are system safety and accident analysis for software intensive systems, concentrating primarily on transportation systems. And because I have mostly worked within NASA's aeronautics research program. I'm essentially required to be especially interested in transportation systems that fly in the Earth's atmosphere, so aircraft. I think I should probably, just in case, before we go any further, say that in case there's somebody who's listening to this podcast who who might think that I'm speaking for the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, I'm not. Uh, my opinions are just that, they're, they're mine. Uh, I don't represent the agency and the things that I'm saying.
0: Thanks, Michael. We're asking you for your opinions because pretty much ever since I knew there was a thing such as system safety, I've been hearing you speak at conferences, particularly in collaboration with your co-author, Chris Johnson, trying to both address some of the big questions in system safety, but also just to clarify what those big questions are. Could you outline for us what you see as the really big questions, the things that we still don't know about system safety?
1: Yeah, sure. I think I'll do that in two ways. One is kind of a a really big, very general question, and then one a little bit more specific. The first really big question, I think, is something along these lines. Will we be able to sustain into the future the level of safety that we currently enjoy as we develop and deploy increasingly complex, increasingly automated, and interdependent systems and services? That, that question is, is not answered yet because we don't have a coherent, comprehensive, agreed understanding of what the, the necessary and sufficient conditions are that enable the safe deployment and development of, of, of systems even now, we seem to be able to do it rather well, but we don't really seem to know why we can do it. Software on commercial airplanes, I think, is a good example. In the, currently, there there are a bunch of regulatory requirements that have to be met to receive approval for use. Despite occasionally strident criticisms of these requirements from various quarters, there's pretty strong empirical evidence that the systems developed that comply with those requirements have been remarkably successful. It's not only the case that there's been no fatal commercial aircraft accident that's been attributed to a software error. It's also true that many of the improvements that have been credited with significantly reducing the accident rate have relied heavily on software. Control flight into terrain used to be a a big category of accidents, and that's been virtually eliminated through enhanced ground proximity warning systems, which are heavily reliant on software. So although we don't know why necessarily these systems are as safe as they are, they do appear to be quite safe. So in this particular example within with the regulatory requirements, are the systems safe? Because of the regulatory requirements, is every single existing regulatory requirement essential for safety or some subset of them? And if it's a subset, which subset? Or is it perhaps the case that the regulatory requirements actually make no contribution to the safety of the aircraft? And there are other things going on that that do that. We really don't know how to answer that question. So that's the kind of very high level, slightly A related question, but it's a slightly more specific is this is what constitutes sufficient evidence that using a particular method for safety analysis or a tool or a standard. You know, it doesn't have to be a method, but let's just use that term for simplicity. What constitutes sufficient evidence that using such a thing is a good idea? How do we know that it's a good idea? Uh, is it enough that some world renowned expert says that the method is the best thing ever? Or do we need some sort of positive case study that shows that it's good, hopefully by someone other than the developer of that method? Or do we need strong theoretical re- reasoning? or controlled experiments, all of these, do we not really know until it's embodied in the standard? There's not an agreed answer to that question, you know, and that, that form of question either. So, there are lots of other things I could say, but I think those two, pretty well encapsulate the state of our knowledge right now.
0: On the face of it, it sounds like those two questions have got very different ways of answering. The first one seems like a question that could be answered definitively and empirically, you know, what works, what doesn't work, although it's a very big question to answer in that way. The second one sounds more like a political or sociological question about what's acceptable and what's enough.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you could look at it that way. At one level, at another level, I would say the second question certainly has the "what's enough" status too. But I, but I think there's some technical issues there as well. You know, in, in the sense of even if we could agree on the end result that we want, determining you know for the sorts of somewhat fuzzy things that we do in safety. How do you do a controlled experiment? What does that even mean um, from a technical standpoint can be a quite difficult thing to do? What's the relationship between you know empirical results and, and strong mathematical or logical reasoning? Kind of a technical question. Oh, you might could argue that's a philosophical presuppositional question that will never be answered. I understand what you're saying, and I think there's, there is an interaction there that certainly goes beyond the technical.
0: So we're making leaps and bounds in making safe systems and safer technologies. What's holding us up from finding answers to the questions about how to make things safe?
1: I think there are several things, and, and maybe the first thing I want to say is actually echoes some of what uh, John Downer said in episode 15. that He was talking about quantitative risk assessment and the, the, the way that that's kind of fraught with problems when used for safety-critical systems. I think that this search for quantification seems to be spreading even further beyond traditional risk assessments to assessments of confidence and arguments that we're making and things like that. So I mean I've seen tools for example that that output something that I think is even sillier than some of the the silly examples that you used before, something like, you know, there's an 88.45% confidence that the probability of an accident in this system is 1.583 times 10 to the minus five. You know, so you just have silly numbers on top of silly numbers. So I think one big impediment to finding good answers to these serious epistemic questions can be an obsession with numbers, which can result in an inability to distinguish between legitimate numbers, such as, you know, how many pounds can a particular cable support and numbers that are entirely illegitimate like these Bayesian derivations of values of confidence that that I alluded to earlier. So I think that can be an impediment. And and then I think there there are others that that come to mind, complacency, egos, and money. Let's kind of look at those in reverse order. Um, Money is is an impediment because research and system safety can be very expensive, but it also uh, tends not to regularly attract the attention of organizations that have deep pockets. It's not the exciting sort of things. You know, it's not like making aircraft fly around, you know, autonomously. And, um, you know, that doesn't make cute pictures on TV to see a system not fail. So that can be an impediment. I don't think I'm not saying in any way that there isn't any funding for research, because there certainly is. I mean, my own agency has an aviation safety research program, and there's several ongoing activities looking at system safety type issues within it but there aren't many projects around that are trying to design and conduct true experiments or even comprehensive case studies uh, using real systems that compare the efficacy of various methods you know there there's stuff building new, uh designing new methods but not a whole lot trying to compare existing ones so and and doing that I mean there are good reasons for that that involve the lack of money it's extremely hard and extremely expensive to do these sorts of comparisons that would help us to answer the second one of the questions that i mentioned so money's a, an impediment egos are are an impediment um i think the system safety research community seems to have more than its fair share perhaps of people who think you could put pick a random selection of 10 to 15 active system safety researchers Stick them in a room and probably eight to 13 of them would immediately be thinking, I'm the smartest person in the room. Why isn't everyone agreeing with me right away? And attitudes like that are not not conducive to productive discussions about pros and cons of various approaches. There are people who would be thinking there are no cons to my approach and no pros to yours. It's not conducive to a broad collaboration on research why should I collaborate with you since I'm so much smarter than you kind of attitude. And it's it's not really not conducive to positive interactions between researchers and practitioners. Uh, you know, people who have been successfully building safe system for years, tend not to take kindly to being told by some researcher that most everything they're doing is stupid and ought to be replaced right away with something new. I was actually in a conference several years ago group of people you know who build our approve software for commercial aircraft again you know whose empirical record is quite good were essentially told by a very well-known person if i if i mentioned their name they would certainly be known that they didn't know what they were doing and they ought to start doing things the way that this particular fellow was suggesting they should that really did not go over well as you can imagine so there's egos and then I think the last thing is, is complacency. Uh, that's a, an impediment because it's very easy to feel comfortable with the current level of safety. Uh, even if we don't really understand why we're that safe, but we're just happy with it and it tends to promote an attitude of we're safe now. Why should we even imagine that we won't be safe in the future? Looking at software systems, you know, they've really improved safety so far. So. Isn't it the case that relying even more on software will improve safety even more in the future? So I think those are my big four impediments: uh, numbers, egos, complacency, and and money.
0: What do you think it would take to make progress towards overcoming them?
1: Well, on, on days that I'm feeling particularly pessimistic, which are are most days, I'm inclined to say dead people. It kind of sounds bad, but accidents tend to destroy complacency and force people to suppress their egos and open up funding sources, uh, in ways that basically nothing else seems to do. And if you look at the history of engineering and many disciplines, a whole lot of advances in safety did not come about until there was an accident or series of accidents that kind of forced people to look at things more, more carefully. So that's the pessimistic answer. Uh, if I'm, Feeling more optimistic, which happens occasionally, I would be inclined to say that continuing along the current path may get us there. And, and the reason I say that is that it is clearly the case that significant progress in safety has been made over, over the years, you know, in virtually every sector. You know, the, the number of commercial aircraft accidents has gone down considerably. It's now an extremely rare event for a commercial aircraft to crash. Even automobiles' safety is significantly better. You know, almost every sector, things are much safer now than they used to be. Now, we could argue a long time about why that's the case, but it is true. So progress has been made. So maybe we don't really know entirely why, but we seem to be able to make improvements anyway. I think you could... If you're feeling optimistic, you could say, as long as we don't try to go too far beyond our current knowledge and capabilities too quickly, then perhaps these impediments that I've mentioned won't be so great uh, as to result in the severe consequences such as dead people that I said earlier. And you have to temper that optimism a little bit with the fact that deciding what constitutes too far and too quick is notoriously and historically difficult. Uh, you know, one of my favorite writers on engineering subjects is Henry Petrosky from Duke University, and he has a a statement that I sometimes use as my signature in email that addresses that very issue. He he says, the history of engineering is full of examples of dramatic failures that were once considered confident extrapolations of successful designs.
0: Can I put you on the spot by asking if there's anything in particular, that scares you at the moment that people are trying to do that might be beyond the limits of what we can make safe?
1: Unmanned aerial vehicles, unmanned aerial systems, UAS, I am concerned with the speed at which things seem to be moving and towards putting those into the controlled airspace. I think it will eventually be possible to do it safely. I think there are people who honestly believe, I think they're wrong, But honestly believe that we could do it today, you know, and that all of the barriers are just people who are too pessimistic and too cautious and those kinds of things. But I'm afraid if we push for that too soon, you know, we could well end up with UAS crashing into buildings or people or things like that. So that that concerns me a bit. I think some of the things that are doing being done in the medical domain, there may be a little push too fast. But that the medical is such a difficult area because what safety means there is very different than in the things that I'm used to because, you know, when, when you're building an airplane, you, the basic idea is if the plane doesn't kill somebody, they're not dying that day kind of thing. So you have a pretty strong understanding of what safety means there. But if you're, you know, developing a medical device or something that's designed to help people who are on the verge of, of dying without it anyway, much harder to say how safe it has to be before it should be deployed. So, so that's an area that scares me a little bit too.
0: That's down the challenges end. At the research end, what do you think is the most interesting or promising things going on at the moment?
1: I'd rather not Talk about specific research efforts. So, so let me talk about that in terms of what I think are promising trends. I think the, the single most promising trend I I think is, is an increasing awareness of the inherent benefits of being as explicit as possible about the safety claims we make and our reasons for having confidence that those claims are true. It is certainly easier to intelligently discuss and analyze Explicitly stated reasons than it is to try to extract implicit, unstated, hidden reasons, uh, kind of thing. So, you know, the more explicit we say, we believe the system is sufficiently safe to operate in this environment because X, Y, Z, and you can look at those reasons explicitly. I, th- I think doing that is a really good trend. I think that's, that's very helpful and increases the likelihood that we'll get to answers for the, the sorts of questions that I mentioned earlier. One of the things I'm doing in my research is seeking to explicitly articulate the implicit reasoning that underlines the guidance that's used for approving software that, that uh, flies on aircraft. So that's one trend. Secondly, kind of getting at this ego barrier, it seems to me, and, and I'm I could be totally wrong about this, I might just be being unusually optimistic, but it seems to me that there's a tad less what I'll call hero worship today than there was five to 10 years ago. Once upon a time, the pronouncements of certain experts tended to be blindly believed by many people. And now it seems to me that there are a few more people who expect even the, you know, the revered experts to back up their pronouncements with coherent or, or at least plausible arguments supported by some evidence for the things that they say. Um, One other trend that I think is is very promising is there seems to be a growing willingness to learn from other disciplines, including disciplines outside of engineering and mathematics. You know, when it comes to sufficient grounds for having justified confidence that some claim we're making is true, there's been a lot of good work, you know, over quite a long time from philosophers and legal scholars and this work is starting to be studied and applied in system safety research. I, I think that's a very promising thing to do. And then there's some good work by sociologists like John Downer, who you interviewed recently, and psychologists about you know understanding acceptable levels of safety, how people think about it, ethical issues, and I think it's good that system safety people are starting to look at that a little more so than they they used to. I mean, you got, you have to be careful with those sorts of things. But I think it's a very promising trend. Again, on optimistic days, I would say, you know, if these kinds of trends continue, then I, I, I think we may fairly soon find answers to these unanswered questions and be able to have legitimate confidence, not just complacent confidence, that the systems we build in the future will be even safer than the ones we build today.
0: That sounds like a good note to finish on. Michael Holloway, thank you very much.
1: Thanks. I very much appreciate the opportunity to talk.
0: That's it for this episode of Disastercast. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please send me a message using the feedback address on the website disastercast.co.uk. You can also find show notes with more information about the topic of each episode and transcripts for most segments.